I am so excited to welcome everybody to season two of Nonprofit on the Rocks, this fantastic podcast that at least I think is fantastic. My name is Matt Kamen. I am the co-founder of the Vision Consulting and the host, and I am welcoming Ashley Watterson, our, would you call yourself a phenomenal producer, our like kind of good producer? How do you want to describe yourself, Ashley? Fledgling, burgeoning, I mean, coming along for sure, you know? Wait, wait, wait. Do you believe you're coming along though? Have our podcasts actually improved? What do you think? I mean, Matt, I can only do what I can do with the material that I'm given, right? Uh, so is that a di- is that a dig to our I, guests? I mean, no, are, you, are you talking no. about our guests? Is that I, what you're saying? Our guests are fantastic, Matt. And honestly, Matt, you are coming along. Well, let's hope that our listener, well, actually it's now listeners. I can actually say it's listeners now, right? Let's We've hope- moved up to two, right, Matt? <laughs> There's at least two people listening now. <laughs> I think my mom stopped listening, to be honest. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're gaining a listener per season, Matt. That was our goal when we set out. So this is season two, which I am beyond excited about. I think we've actually recorded almost all of the shows. Now you have your work cut out for you at the end of the day. My gosh, Matt, every day you send me a text about someone new that you interviewed and I, it's just like a stack in my inbox. Well, this one is fun. This, this is our first show of season two. And if anybody was listening to last show and last season, I want to be clear. This is totally an arbitrary bullshit number that Ashley and I came up with because what we decided was that if you start with like another season and then a third season, maybe in terms of SEO, the show kind of pops up a little higher. That's what we think anyway. That's right. We're playing the game to try to get this show some notoriety, get some more clicks going, whatever we got to do, Matt. I don't know if it will work, but we'll see. So this is my friend, Jen Levy, who I've known since high school, um, is the founder of the Beverly Hills Community Farm, which we will talk about. We'll talk about the name. We'll talk about all that good stuff. And also why anybody's so crazy to start a nonprofit. I, I always tell people not to, but nobody listens. So she'll tell you all about being a founder. Can we back up for just a second, Matt? So Jen is your friend from high school. And I'm just so curious because I want to know, like, did everyone who went to your high school are they now all in nonprofit work? Did you go to like HSPA, but instead of high school for the performing arts, it's like high school for public administration? Like No, no, because we went to Beverly Hills High School and everybody wanted money. So no, we're the only idiots in the nonprofit space. Everybody else went into like real estate and banking and all that good <laughs> stuff. And they are like, they're living in Beverly Hills actually. And here I am in the Valley. So, so Matt, you and Jen were the special members of the class. There you go. Of- what was it, 2015? Class of 2015? No, I, I wasn't there when, when they did math, but I'm going to say this decade. This decade is when we graduated high school. Yeah, we just, I literally just graduated college the other day. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Matt, you're a prodigy. Everyone knows it. And just a reminder to our listeners out there, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would be a good future guest for us, find us on our website www.envisionnonprofit.com. You can listen to the episode there. You can contact us there. It's a one-stop shop. There you go. Doing your job. Doing your job in a, in a fledgling, iffy, kind of salesy way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, my friend, Jen is up. So, 
So I'm very excited about today's episode. This is my friend, Jen Levy, who is the founder of an organization. She's crazy. She decided to start her own nonprofit, which we're going to get to in a minute. But Jen, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, I want everybody to know, all the 14 listeners, because we've moved up in the world, that Jen's a little bit nervous, and I told her she should be. We're going to have to put her on the spot a few times. Are you okay with that? I mean, right now I am. We'll, we'll see when we get into it. <laughs> the more you drink, the more you drink is the better. So what are you, since this is our, this is actually a five o'clock happy hour, which I'm it proud of us. It is. Yes. What are you drinking today? I mean, bourbon, of course. I made a Manhattan. <laughs> you made a Manhattan. Awesome. Awesome. That makes me so happy. I am going to do Four Roses again. I haven't had that in a while. Hmm. So yeah, I'm excited about it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Happy podcast. Mm-hmm. It is so good. I was talking to Ashley actually about maybe doing like a dry march, which I am not excited about. So wow. I know what do you It's a bold move for you. How do you think the podcast would go if I were sober? I mean, I think it would probably be great still, but you might have a little less fun. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't like the idea, but I feel like I just want to sleep. Like this whole pandemic has screwed up my sleep. How are you sleeping? Not great. Mm-hmm. Not great. See, I don't know. I feel like what people say is if you stop drinking, you sleep better. But I feel like they're also full of shit because I think they just want you to be in their misery. I don't know. What do you think? I think both are correct. Mm-hmm. I want you to be in their misery, but I do feel like I sleep better if I don't drink. <laughs> so, but I have more fun, I guess, if I drink. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that where the cutoff is. <laughs> you know, one of our mutual friends actually from high school. And by the way, I know Jen from high school, just so everybody knows, when we graduated in 2010, right? I can't do the math. But one of our mutual friends who used to have a bottle of wine every night, which I realized might be a little much, she's been dry for a month. And she, I saw her for lunch and I broke the rules. I saw her for lunch. And she said she has never slept better and her skin was never clearer. And I was like, damn it. But I don't want to hear that. So. Wow. I would, that's impressive then. Because I feel like my skin and my sleep are both impacted the more I drink. All right, Jen. Well, I'll leave it up to you. If you decide to go go that route, maybe I will. But for the listeners, we'll become a listener at that point. So we'll see how it goes. But anyway, I'm very happy to have you. So we've known each other since 1990-something. That's cool. And I know a lot about you. And I promised that I wouldn't embarrass you too much, though I will a little bit because I feel like people have to know. But I do want you to talk a little bit about your nonprofit. So I have people come to me every day and say, hey, I want to start a nonprofit. And I always say, don't do that. You're an idiot. So you did start a new nonprofit. I did. Uh, I did not listen to you. Nobody does. (laughs) So it's called the Beverly Hills Community Farm. I'd love for you to tell folks what it's all about and how it started. So yes, it is called the Beverly Hills Community Farm. And as the title says, we are a farm in Beverly Hills. So it really started, I mean, I guess to go back a little bit, I was a teacher in Los Angeles and I really fell in love with agriculture and gardening in my backyard and growing food. And so I transitioned from teaching and wanting to learn more about agriculture to actually quitting my job and leaving teaching so I could learn how to be a farmer. And so I skipped a couple steps, but that's, you know, the gist of my journey. Um, Really, the crux behind it was that I wanted, I think that so much of what we can do for the earth and for ourselves and just kind of humanity and the betterment of the world is to grow our own food and take care of land, our land a little better. And so I really wanted to learn how to do that. 
growing up in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and teaching in a private school in Hollywood, I didn't really have the chance to learn how to farm on a big scale. So I think you and I, by the way, like we don't, I, I just want people to hear this because I think it's important for people to hear that you and I talked about water and how I take 19 showers a day. You only take one for like five minutes. But what I do, which you do, is we don't flush all the time if we just have to pee. So yes. if anyone wants to know, Jen and I don't flush if we pee all day. And my showers are definitely not five minutes. They're four maximum. And the water is off for the majority of those four minutes, by the way. It has been years since I've had a relaxing shower for the rest. <laughs> Well, if you if you travel outside of California where there actually is water, like for example. Yes. Yes. My showers were still short, but I wouldn't turn the water off and on in between. Four so minutes. I honestly know how people stay in the shower longer than four minutes. Like the the stress I think having, you know, it's too much for me. <laughs> so anyway, I quit teaching essentially to learn how to be a farmer. So, you know, city girl from Los Angeles moved to Northeast Ohio to learn how to farm. And I spent a couple of years there working on an aquaponic farm and a production farm, an outdoor production farm. And so I really, again, kind of that just reiterated my love for growing your own food and buying local and supporting local and wanting to kind of take that path, leave, you know, traditional education and really move into agriculture. From there, I spent about a year and a half running an urban farm in Colorado where I got to do some education as well as an educational urban farm, but knowing deep down that I always wanted to come back to California, but not really sure of what that was going to look like. And so during my time in Colorado, I really uh, talking with you and a lot of my close friends back here kind of was bouncing the idea around of starting an urban farm out here. And the feedback was super positive. Like I, I got a very different reaction than I thought I would. And so everyone seemed to be in it, both people who love me and support me no matter what, and also strangers who, who I didn't know and who really love the idea and what, you know, I was trying to do. And so end of 2000, middle of 2019, second half, I guess, I moved back to Los Angeles and started with my two co-founders, both who grew up in Beverly Hills as well. And so we all kind of grew up together and wanted to make an impact in the city that, you know, raised us essentially we decided to start a nonprofit urban farm. We went back and forth for a long time, whether it was going to be a for-profit or a nonprofit farm. And so that was definitely a big decision on our part. Obviously, I didn't go into farming to become a millionaire. You know, I really wanted to educate people and bring a community together and really kind of rally together. This is pre-COVID. So this was kind of before, you know, all of this is current situation, but really just create a space where so many people could gather and learn and grow, no pun intended. So we really, you know, took the nonprofit route because we felt that that was a way where we could bring tons of people together in a way that didn't, that we weren't necessarily benefiting from financially. You know, that was never the goal. It was really about education and about, you know, cultivating this community of greater health and, and personal well-being. And so that's kind of how we decided to take the nonprofit route. So I, I love that story. I have a few questions. Yeah. Uh, first of all, now that you've been doing this for a year and a year and a half, right? A year and a half, a little bit over a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, COVID year and a half, but yes. COVID year, I don't even know. I don't even know what day it is. I still don't know what day it is. I, I really yeah. don't. Every every day this week, I thought was Friday. So, You're not even close. <laughs> not even close. No, I know. Not even. So, if you could go back in time, would you change it to a for profit? Are you happy that you're still a nonprofit? Ooh, that's a great question. As of right now, I think I would stick with the nonprofit route. I think that 
2020 has made it challenging for a million reasons, some of which I think being a nonprofit makes a little more attractive, right? Like we're really trying to bring people together. It's still, our mission hasn't changed. What we're trying to do hasn't changed. We want to give back to the community. We already started donating produce, you know, to organizations in need. And so I think the work we're trying to do doesn't look the same if we're a for-profit. And then I would have to worry about donating our food versus selling it. And now I don't have to worry about that, right? I don't have to worry about selling our produce. I can donate it and know that that's part of our mission. And that's really why I went into this. Um, and then as things hopefully improve, you know, a little day by day, we will be able to sell food and we'll be able to make some money and kind of do all these other things. But the at the core of what we're trying to do, I don't think I would actually change that. Okay, I like that. By the way, I want you to take a, a drink of that old fashioned because okay, here. I'm watching you, you're not drinking anything and I am. I know, but I'm, I'm talking. It's, you know, yeah. I know, but see, I'm going to be the one who's like, you know, loose lips and you're going to be like, and I got to get you. I it's all part you. of my master plan. That is all part of my master plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so going back, you said you started in Ohio, and out of all the states in the country, no offense to my friends who live in Ohio, why Ohio? Great question. So before I moved to Ohio, a couple years prior, I participated in a fellowship program through the Environmental uh, Leadership Program. And through that, I met people from all over the world doing pretty awesome work in sustainability, not necessarily agriculture, just in the field of sustainability. And one of my kind of pod mates within this cohort lived in Ohio and did work for local food and sustainability and had invited me to spend the summer running a farm summer camp. So I had been an educator at the time. I had my summers off. I didn't have plans for the summer post our fellowship. And uh, she connected me with a local farm in uh, Oberlin, Ohio, associated with the college. And they were having a farm summer camp. So growing up at summer camps and working at camps forever, it was kind of the perfect fit for what I wanted to do. And I could bring my camp piece, but also learn about agriculture. And so I spent the summer in Oberlin, Ohio, running a farm summer camp. I met all these farmers and people doing great work in sustainability. And so when you hear of Northeast Ohio, sustainability might not be the first thing that comes to your mind, but there's actually some incredible work going on there in the world of sustainability, specifically local food. And so while I was there, I met some farmers who had just started an aquaponic farm. And I had spent kind of my days off from camp volunteering with them and learning about what they were doing a little bit. And so after that summer, I came back to California and I was teaching and I was not super passionate about the work I was doing and really felt like I had spent the summer meeting all these people doing work in the field that I wanted to be in, yet I didn't have any access to that out here. And so it was during that school year where I really decided to leave Los Angeles and move to Ohio, which doesn't happen very often. It's usually the other way around. People probably leave Ohio to come to California. I mean, no offense to our friends in Ohio, which I'm sure is a lovely, beautiful state. And I it feel is. like, by the way... I feel like, is it fair to say that the guys in Ohio are just a little bit more like handsome because they're just like, they're more like rugged. Like here in LA, we're just all fake and celebrity, but in Ohio, it's like, they're like, yeah, they're, they're, they're like, definitely more, I don't know if I would say more handsome. I would say maybe less pretty, Ah, uh, less pretty, but yet hotter in a sense. 50, 50. All right. I'm just, yeah. I mean, yes and no. I don't, I mean, I can't say for every guy in Ohio, but yes, there's definitely like a more rugged feel. So I left LA and I went to Ohio and I spent two years there working, you know, with this farm, Lettuce Heads Farm in Wellington, Ohio, and really learning the ins and outs of kind of production farming. 
we had a CSA program, so a community supported agriculture program where people could buy a weekly share of produce. We went to different farmers markets. We sold to restaurants. So I really got to kind of learn all of those things in one space. And because it's such a small community, I really got to know, I mean, the farmers and their families and our, you know, customers. It really was a super incredible experience. In addition to that, I also got to do some work in the water, nonprofit water world, which was incredible. And I got to go to Africa. I mean, it really opened up a lot of doors for me and just then allowed me to kind of realize like the things that I could do and bring back to California. I will tell everybody who's listening and hopefully we've kept them or grown them that Jen and I for a while used to get into discussions about water bottles, plastic water bottles. And I will say that she has converted me and I don't use plastic water bottles at all unless I have zero choice. So impressive. So there you go. There you go. Yes. Thank no you for that. Water bottles, period. So just so you know. single use plastics. There's really, it's, it just comes out of laziness, right? We, we can prepare a, a little more. I'm going to tell you something, though, that I'm only going to tell you is that right. walking to the office today, because I go to the office once a week and I bought iced tea, bottles of iced tea, but they're glass, not plastic. Well done. You. And as I was walking, I had a few things in my hand and one of the bottles fell on the ground and, and broke and like glass is everywhere. And I'm just going to tell you, I left it there and then I left. So that's what happens when you have glass bottles as opposed to glass bottles. Break a glass bottle. I didn't fix it. I didn't clean it up. But I, in your honor, I did that for you. So I appreciate it. And I'll take the mess versus the plastic. <laughs> so something really interesting about Ohio is that, you know, we can't buy anything in LA for less than, you know, a million dollars. But in Ohio, you can buy like a, like a compound for like $200,000. The only negative thing I'll say about Ohio is the weather is really tough. It's the sun doesn't come out for many, many months. And being a California girl and loving the sun in general, that's challenging. But other than the weather... Life in Ohio is way easier. It really, uh, I never would have known that until I left LA. And, you know, you don't think that things are easier just because you're in a different state, but they 100% are. People are super, super nice. There's not this like competitiveness in your day-to-day. -day. There's not as much traffic. I, I drove, my commute was a 50-mile commute. Wow. Took me 45 minutes every day. <laughs> so here, my school was eight miles away and it took me you know, between 25 and 40 minutes every day. Mm -hmm. So it's also super beautiful. It's on Lake Erie, which feels kind of like an ocean coming from California. There's a huge lake culture and water culture and they, they're doing a lot of sustainability or at least my group of friends, you know, was kind of in that world. And so it really felt like wonderful people. And again, the, the history of Ohio, especially compared to California is insanely vast. You know, there's nine presidents from Ohio and at one point, like a third of the wealthiest people lived in, you know, the east side of Cleveland. And there's just like all of this history. We're coming from Los Angeles specifically. We don't have any of that. And so there's a, a huge sense of pride for people who live in, in Ohio. And I've, other than like sports teams I've played on or like things like that, like my soccer teams and things like that, I haven't ever experienced like such a community of people who love where they're from. I want to know in terms of having a farm, right? So what is the like coolest thing about running a farm or setting up a farm? Like, what do you like the most about it? Yeah. So right now, just to give you like a little update on where our farm is, is that we're pre-COVID, we had all these plans and we had started having meetings with different people within Beverly Hills and kind of different departments, just 
very unofficial, just kind of conversations about what we were trying to do and what that could look like. And again, the feedback was super positive, but then the pandemic hit and there weren't any, you know, we basically stopped any conversation. So where we are right now is that we started growing hydroponically. So in tower farms, which growing hydroponically is always part of our mission. Wait, I got to back up for one second. Hydroponically, what does that mean? Yeah. So you're growing in water instead of soil. Okay. So you're growing in water instead of soil. Okay. Got it. So, and then the aquaponics is a little different and that's what I was working on in Ohio and that's brings fish into the equation. So there's a few different things. So in aquaponics, fish provide provide the nutrients to the water and hydroponics, you have to provide the nutrients to the water. So in the fish scenario, they're pooping and that's what's getting the food to grow. Yep, all their waste is going through. It's a little more scientific, but yes, that's the that's the short end of it. That their waste is then providing the nutrients to the water for the plants. And then the right. plants suck it up and then kind of keeps rotating around. We're eating the poop of fish in our lettuce, is what you're telling me. I mean, the, the roots of the plant are really eating it versus you. You're just soaking up some of those really delicious nutrients. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. On, that, on that note, okay. So, so part of our mission was always to have multiple kind of methods of growing. So we wanted an outdoor raised bed farm to teach people, you know, dirt, soil, all of that fun stuff. We also wanted a hydroponic system, whether that was in independent towers, we looked into different companies doing shipping container farming, but really to hyper-localize food on a big scale, growing hydroponically is a really great way to do that. So it uses 90% less land than traditional farming, 98% less water, and the turnaround is about three times faster. So growing that way was always part of our mission. Again, with everything going on, we had to alter our plans. And so what we are doing right now, we started the beginning of 2021. We're located in a vacant commercial space in Beverly Hills, and we have 15 tower farms. So essentially, each one of those towers holds 28 plants. All of the produce that we have from that, we've been donating so far. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to start selling a little bit of that. And so that's currently what we're doing. We are in the process of fundraising to buy 15 more towers. Again, the more towers we can buy, the more we can donate, and then the more we can sell. And on top of that, we're really trying to show people that it's easy to grow your own food, especially using these towers. They take away kind of all of the hard work. So one of the one of our goals is to not only grow food for people, but to teach people how to grow their own food. So it would make sense. I do want to go back to a farm in one second, but it would then make sense that like everybody who can afford it should have their own tower. So the way, and I've seen your towers. So the way that I could explain it to people who are listening is mm-hmm. that you plug it into a source, you put water in it and it's like a, it's like a water fountain, but it has like, you said 28 different like openings for different vegetables. That's the yep. easiest thing to explain it. So like, in a sense, everybody at their house should have their own, if they could afford it, should have their own tower because then we can all yeah. grow different kinds of produce. Yeah, 100%. And that's definitely part of our education goal, right, is to teach people how to do it, to provide services so that they can do it on their own, to work with local schools, to get them into every school so they can start growing their own food. So there's lots of benefits. There are also the interesting thing about greens specifically is that most produce, the second you harvest it, it starts losing its nutrients, right? It's not attached to its nutrient source. And so whatever you're cutting it, you know, you cut it and then that's it. There's no more coming into those plants. So the quicker you eat those plants, the more nutrient, you know, rich food you're going to get. So when we go to the grocery store and we buy a bag of spinach, 
realistically, that spinach was harvested three weeks prior to when we got it. Maybe two weeks, you know, if you live in California, maybe even one week. But there's still a pretty big lag between harvest and getting to your plate. So part of our overarching goal, eventually, when we have our outdoor space or can grow on a much bigger scale, would be to lessen that footprint for local restaurants. So we can provide one item, you know, to all of the restaurants in Beverly Hills, and they can curate their menu for whatever we grow for them. You know, and then every day we can harvest it and deliver. Literally, you could harvest before lunch, be on your plate at lunch. You could harvest before dinner, it could be on your plate at dinner, right? So really working with the community on how to kind of close that loop and keep everything within a three-mile radius. That sounds amazing, by the way. And so why, what is the purpose then of having a farm if you can have all these towers? Great question. The towers, one, take up a decent amount of space. So we're looking at working in a, in a converted shipping container where each tower holds, let's say, 28 plants. The commercial size holds a little bit more, closer to 48. One shipping container has room for 4,100 full-size plants. Wow. So it's a huge, it's just a scaling issue, right? So you couldn't fit enough towers in the footprint of a shipping container to get the same amount of produce. I think. So we're always going to have these towers. We think they're amazing. And especially for the home chef or family or just anyone who's curious and likes to eat fresh food. But on a scale that big, we would need it. We would need a bigger kind of output of, of produce and the shipping containers would provide that. I see. So every house, should, if they could afford it again, should have a tower or every school yeah. could have towers, but ultimately we still need the farms. So what was the, there was a, there was a plant, there was one of like the, there was a variety of lettuce or something that you gave me that I thought was so amazing. What's it called? Yeah. Sorrel. Sorrel. How do you spell sorrel. it? S-O-R-R-E-L. And it is so ridiculous. It's so good. I mean. It's you, amazing. It tastes like a lemon. It, it literally, they call it like lemonade in a leaf. You it, you picked it from the tower and handed it to me. And that's how cool I did. Yeah. So and wasn't it like, aside from the unique flavor of that specific crop, wasn't it one of the like freshest tasting greens you've ever had? It was ridiculous. I kind of want it's like, a, I want like a whole salad of that. And it, yeah, it, 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 I eat it every day basically because of that. So again, there's all these things out there that we don't get the opportunity to taste, right? Especially, listen, I love to cook experiment and very rarely do I buy something that I've never used before. So maybe I've tried it somewhere, I've heard about it or done some research, I'll try something new. But the benefit again of having these towers, having these, you know, educational kind of outlets about fresh produce, we get to tell people and show people all these things that are out there. So you're a perfect example, right? You were coming over as a social get together and I'm so excited about it and I want to show you and watching people's reaction to eating sorrel is like the best thing ever because nobody's ever tasted anything like it. No, it was so good. I mean, it was ridiculous. I want everybody, if you can, to find sorrel. It's so good. And yeah. I never had it before. I never heard of it before. So, right. okay. We've learned some things. We've learned some things so far on this show. Number one, I like to talk about handsome men across the country. Really? <laughs> uh, you're not drinking enough. Number two, now you are. Number three, these towers are ridiculous. They're amazing. And we'll have the we'll have the link to this on our website so people can go to it to buy a tower. And how much does yeah. it cost to buy a tower? So if you're going to have the tower outside, you don't need to have LED grow lights because you get, you need a south-facing kind of area in your home. But as long as it gets sunlight, you don't need the lights. And so that tower is $650. And that comes with 
seeds and starting kind of growing mediums and nutrients that should last you six-ish months. And then we also will provide a service to help you, to teach you how to take care of it, right? So teach you how to do the nutrients, teach you how to test the pH, show you things to look for to make sure your plants are happy. And then if you have the grow lights, it's an additional $300. Got it. Okay. So six in, let's say $1,000 with the lights, if you're going to have it inside, luckily in Southern California, most people, not most, a lot of people have a space outdoors that they could put it. And it, they're about three feet wide by five and a half feet tall. So their actual footprint is pretty small and they hold 20 gallons of water at a time. So you don't need, it doesn't need to be attached to a water source. You just need to be able to get water to it. It doesn't take a lot of water either. So it doesn't no, not at all. I mean, at the beginning, especially, I mean, while the plants are still pretty small, they, you know, you, you, you add a couple gallons, maybe every few weeks. So that's number three is the tower. Number four is that sorrel. Everybody should try. And because yes. I'm not a vegetable person, and if I like it. And number five, you take four minute showers. So these are the five things so far on this show that people yep. should take. Right. Okay. So now I want to move on to the name. So here's the thing that I find to be really interesting. You are a nonprofit with the name Beverly Hills in it. So I think a lot of potential donors would say it's Beverly Hills. They're rich. They don't need any money. Why should I donate? So talk to me a little bit about the history of how you came up with the name and how it is a true nonprofit because those people who don't, you know, who haven't been there, Beverly Hills sure has a lot of money, but there's a lot of parts that don't. And there's a lot of other things to it. So explain to us. Yeah. About the name. Yes. So again, like the, the goal of this was to really make an impact, start small in a community where we could really have a big, you know, make big changes. Beverly Hills is a small city, like both in population and in geographic footprint, right? I think it's five and a half square miles. I don't have all of, I don't know exactly for sure, but it's very small, right? All the, the downtown kind of restaurants area are all within a few mile radius. And our goal was really to be a kind of opportunity for other cities to take what we were doing and translate into their city on a bigger scale, right? So knowing that on a small scale, we could get one shipping container, maybe two shipping containers and provide you know, all the basil to all the Italian restaurants or the arugula or something like that in a, in a small space, in a kind of footprint space, that was really the goal. And we wanted, you know, people do think of Beverly Hills as this really wealthy, like all this money. And yes, like most big cities, there are a lot of wealthy people, but there's also a lot of people who aren't wealthy. And so there's all these parts of the city that people don't realize because they're not necessarily in the news or there's not TV shows made about it. But just like any city, there's kind of all ends of the spectrum. And so what's really amazing is the city of Beverly Hills has done a ton of work in sustainability. So over the past five or six years, they re-greened the walkway, like the parkway on Santa Monica Boulevard. I think it's 1.8 miles. And they took all of the plants out and they made them all natives and they added all LED lights. And it was a huge undertaking um, for what they did. All of the kind of medians in the city use non-potable water for watering them. And so they're doing a ton for sustainability, just nothing specific to food because again, urban farming is still a pretty new concept. And so we felt like they were already doing so much in the world of sustainability that bringing a, a food piece into it was only going to gonna benefit people. And we wanted to be a model for other cities to follow. So if we try to do this in a big city, you know, it's just, there's a lot of red tape wherever you go. And so we knew that in this small kind of space, we could have a huge impact. There's only four schools in the district. 
So that's really great kind of connection to be able to get into all of the schools, to be able to work with all the kids who go to the schools, which is why a lot of families move to the city, right, for the public school system. And so we wanted to make a big impact. There's tons of intergenerational programming that we have planned and all these ways to kind of bring different community members together. And we knew that we could do that. And the three of us, the three co-founders, we grew up there, you know, so we were we wanted to start something where we grew up. We wanted to give back a little bit and really make a difference and kind of change the way people see the city. Cool. And again, I just want to make everybody understand, even though it is the Beverly Hills Community Farm, um, yeah. it is still like, it's still a nonprofit. They still need yes. donations. They are still, you know, Jen, you're not making, I don't even think you're making a salary right now. I'm so. not making a salary, no. So, uh, so. No, no, yeah, we are a nonprofit, uh, and you know, we the goal is really again to work with you know, granting opportunities and other organizations that are doing amazing work. There's tons of amazing nonprofits within the city doing amazing things, and so we want to be on on that level, right? There's all these people doing some really incredible work, but again, none of it is specific to food, and right, so right. food and taking care of the earth and being sustainable and being environmental stewards, like those, that's our mission. That's what we want to teach. And we have the opportunity to teach it to a lot of people in a really small space. So let's back up for one second. So I think, because you had mentioned uh, the school districts, I feel like you and I met, so this won't mean anything to anybody listening, but there was a friend of ours, Sarah Myers, and I think that when Beverly Hills 90210 came out and we went to high school in Beverly Hills, I feel like Sarah had like parties at her house and we as Beverly Hills students would then go to watch Beverly Hills 90210, is that correct? Sort of. It really was Sarah's older sister, Melissa. Melissa. Who was a big fan of the show. I was equally a huge fan of the show. And we, it was after the first season when they started having, remember they were the first show to have new episodes in the summer. Oh, right. Remember that after the first, I think it was after the first season, but they had all these summer episodes and TV back then was very different. Right. And so there was nothing new on the summer in the summer and there was nothing to watch. And so we started having watch parties that summer. And that's really when the show took off. And then we kind of just kept it up. So Sarah was present, but I would be remiss to not give Melissa credit for for the parties. And yeah, I believe that is where we met. I mean, we were, you know, we were written about in the newspaper. Like people like love that there were like these these groups of kids from Beverly Hills getting together to watch the show. <laughs> it cracks me up. All right, we have to tell Sarah and Melissa to listen to this podcast so that they yes. know. They've been I know, in- we'll, we'll tell them they both got a shout out. We didn't take credit for it, but- No, uh, I didn't start it. I wish I had. It was definitely a Melissa move. But- I went, you know, but I think, and like as the it, they kind of got more and more- popular like more people came but and we always like traded houses but it started it was definitely a melissa a melissa invention i i feel like um because i'm going to bring it back to guys again because this is the episode of guys i'm sorry jen that there were the three guys it was dylan brandon and then who was the other one who was the young one well there were four steve oh steve he doesn't count nobody cares about steve nobody ever not really but and then david David, that's it. And see, I always had a crush on David, but nobody else cared about David. Everybody was like Dylan or, yeah. right, Dylan or uh, Brandon. Brandon. Uh-huh. Always David. I just want to know. I just want to be clear. So who are you? Uh, Dylan, 150%. I mean, that's not even a question. 
<laughs> Dylan had Dylan had crow's feet and he had forehead like wrinkles in high I mean, he was like 35 years old in real life, which isn't really his fault. He was but, like, uh, yeah, old. I'm team Brenda yeah. and Dylan uh, all the way. I mean, no, no question. <laughs> all right. I just want you to know Ashley's totally going to take that out. But I feel like that's important for viewers to know that I'm a David okay. and you're a Dylan I fan. Think, yeah. I mean, you might be the only David fan. I mean, I feel like David, you know, he needs to get his due. He needs to get his due. On that Beverly Hills 90210 note, you started a nonprofit. I think, as we talked about before, you have to be crazy. So you just never listen to me. So tell tell our tell folks who potentially want to start a nonprofit and really want to like do it and are going to do it. What would be like one or two lessons that you learned that they need to know if they're mm-hmm. going to start their own nonprofit? Oh man, there's a lot. It definitely has been an uphill battle. I will give you that. First of all, like all of the paperwork and all of your kind of applications goes to the IRS, which just takes a lot of time. And it's pretty challenging, even in non-COVID times, but specifically in COVID times to kind of talk to anybody or get anyone on the phone or get any response. And so you kind of spend all this time writing your applications and like putting your heart and soul into it. And then it's months and months and months before you hear anything. And so you have to kind of know that going in. And I wish I did know that, but it definitely still has been brutal, like that piece of it. Um, And we're still not officially, you know, we haven't gotten our approval from the IRS just yet. We're close, hopefully. And we're working with a fiscal sponsor, which is another kind of route. But the, the IRS piece has been challenging just because they have a million things to do right? So small nonprofits, I don't think are at the the top of their list. And so that's been pretty challenging. And then because you're a nonprofit, there's some like logistical things where everything that the nonprofit buys or does is owned by kind of the board, right? And everyone involved, which is, you know, we have an amazing board and we have an amazing advisory board, which you are on. And so we have a lot of support, but it just makes things a little more challenging, right? So any decision you make, you have to get approval from a lot of different people, rightfully so. But again, it just adds one more element to like making quick decisions, which in hindsight is probably good, right? You don't have the opportunity to make these rash decisions on behalf of the organization, but it just, again, it kind of adds some time. We haven't yet started the grant writing process, which was again, a big part of why we wanted to go the nonprofit route because we're educational, we're within a city, we're trying to kind of give back and do all these things. And we know there are grant opportunities out there, but it's just, you know, we're trying to get everything else in order before we take that, take that step. Whereas if we had decided to not go the nonprofit route, we could have taken out some loans, you know, done other things and probably have a huge farm, you know, and been doing a lot already. And so everything has basically been put on hold and that if I had maybe listened better or not have been so like glass half full, maybe I would have, you know, done it differently, but I'm still happy that, you know, we're where we are. And, and I think ending out the year with a commercial space and being able to buy these farms and we've had some really generous donations. And so all of it is great, but if we had gone the, a non nonprofit route, we'd be up and running. No question about it. Way faster. Okay, so three things you said that I want to make sure people understand. Number one, the IRS filing. So you have to, as a nonprofit, as you're officially a 501c3, you have to file to get that approved by the IRS. Yep, your 1023 application. Yep. Right. So just so we know, you applied. How long has it been that you still haven't been approved? Yeah, we applied in June. 
June. So we are now in February. February. So that's a very, yes, it's a COVID year, but that is a very long time. Number two, is. you talked about. They say, it's, they say on average, it's a three-month wait. Right. This is a lot. We're going more. on eight months. So it's not a three-month wait. They didn't even process our application till January. Awesome. So it just sat there. Awesome. Literally, no one even opened it. We do now have like a caseworker and someone that if we need to contact, we can attempt to do that, but they didn't even give us that information till January. So under normal circumstances, if somebody wants to start a nonprofit, it really should take three months to get approved. But for you guys, and because it's COVID, it doesn't always yeah. happen. And I, from the people I know in the nonprofit world, it's never taken three months. Right. right. But on paper, it is a three-month process. Number two, you talked about grants. And grants are when rich people die and they start a foundation, which is where they put their money so that their kids don't have to pay taxes. That foundation gives grants away every year. They have to give a certain percentage. It's a whole other thing. And yep. that's a way for nonprofits to get money and get funding. And then yeah. the those boards that you talked about and a nonprofit board is just, those are the folks who make the, who help the executive director make the decisions to move forward. So yes. I just wanted to make a very quick, like, Hey, if you're listening, you don't know what any of that means. Now, you know, so exactly. you, you also have to ask your friends for money. So here's the question. Yeah. You started this organization. It is a nonprofit. You need to raise money. You have a budget and you've asked your friends for money. You did a whole GoFundMe campaign last year. We gave but I'm sure you have friends who didn't. So as a, as a founder of a nonprofit, when you ask for money and your friends, certain friends don't give you money, does that affect your friendship? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> a little, you know, controversial, but I'm going to, I've had almost a full Manhattan. So yes and no, you know, I think that it, um, it's like heartbreaking and disappointing for sure prior to being a nonprofit executive director and starting my own, I was always pretty philanthropic within my budgetary means. And so when it, almost, I'm not going to say hundred percent of the time, but I would say pretty close whenever someone asked for something, I would give as much as I could at that moment, right? Some people it's continuous every year I give to those people. And then some, it was a one time, but I would really try to give what I could when I could so the people who haven't given anything is, is definitely like a sucker punch a little bit because I feel like we made it pretty clear that, and you know, it, $10 helps. Like it really wasn't about how much that we just wanted to look at our kind of donors and say like, Hey, like we've had 300 people donate and that's amazing. We have not, by the way, had 300 people donate. I'm just saying in theory, I made it clear in my mind that I was not going to think about how much people gave that like just having any support was going to be really meaningful to me. And I'm, and I've stayed pretty strong to that feeling, you know, even though you and I disagree on that a little bit, but like some people have been beyond generous and some people maybe not, but again, nobody knows anyone's circumstances. Right. Um, right. On the flip side though, I will say there's been so many people who, I mean, close people, super generous, which has been awesome, but people who really I'm not close with anymore, or like we're in a kind of prior part of my life that I don't get to see. And especially I was gone for almost five years. And so I definitely haven't seen it in a long time that gave either a little or a big amount, but also just reached out and we're like, good for you. Like you're doing it, you know? And so that I think also speaks a lot. But yeah, of course, like I'm a little hurt from, you know, some, some of the ways that people have not shown up, but 
lonely, it's lonely asking for money and you're never going to get a hundred percent of an ask. Now, when people ask me for money for their nonprofits, for races they're doing or for other things, I will immediately give because there's been plenty of people who've said like, I'm sorry, I keep meaning to give. And then eventually they do, which is super awesome, but it takes, you know, three or four different emails over the course of three or four months of asking. It's really hard to ask for money. And like, when you know, people keep saying they're giving yet they don't give, you're like, what are you waiting for? And I've been that person. So like, I get it because you put, you know, try to remind yourself and then a million other things happen and you, you're not, you don't do it. So I will say moving forward, any organization I want to give to, or someone is asking me to, I will do it literally that day. Like the second I get that ask, I'm giving because it does mean a lot. I agree. And so this is what I will say to anybody out there is that if you have a friend who starts a nonprofit and they are asking for money, even, even if you don't agree with the mission of that organization, if it is a true nonprofit, just write a check for $5. Like it's not complicated. Don't go get a latte that day from Starbucks. Just write a check for $5. For sure. And I'll say on the other side, I won't be offended if it's $5. Like I know the mind frame of people saying like, well, I can only give $5. I'm not going to give $5. But if a hundred people give $5, like that's almost a full tower. So $5 does make a difference. And I think that's part of, I'm not as, you know, I didn't study psychology, but I assume that's part of what goes into it. Like people feeling insecure about the amount they can give. It really doesn't matter. And I've been in that position, like where I'm like, oh, I can only give $18. Like I wish I could give 50 right now. I can't, but it doesn't matter. Like that 18, that five, whatever you have really, it just means a lot. It really shows who is supporting you in every step of the way. I appreciate that. I love that. I agree. And I hope people who are hearing, who are listening to this hear that also, you mentioned 18 because you're a big Jew like me. $18 is what Jews give. It means high in Hebrew, which I think means life. I don't really understand it. But if you are friends of a Jew and you (laughs) ask them for money, they're going to give you dollars in increments of 18. So you're at 18, 36, what is it? 72, whatever else there is. So (laughs) know that why Jen said 18 is because Jen like me is a big Jew. So, all right. So I think that, you know, what people need to need to understand is that you have a fantastic nonprofit. You're doing good work. Yes, it's called Beverly Hills, but that doesn't mean that you have all the money you need. No, you're we not- really have no money, guys, really. I mean, if you're listening, I'll show you our budget. We have nothing. <laughs> We're not getting paid. So like if you're a nonprofit, just know you're not going to get paid. It's going to cost you money. Yeah, and probably 100%. some friendships. And, <laughs> uh, and it's going to be, you're going to eat, breathe, live drink that nonprofit. So yes. I do want to be clear to everybody who's listening, Beverly Hills Community Farm, really great organization. Plus, plus you can just go on there and buy yourself a tower, which is such a cool thing to have. I want one and I just have to figure out where I'm going to put it, but I don't. Oh, I know. Your husband and I have been talking a lot about it. Don't worry. You're getting one. Yeah, yeah. No, no, we want one. And on that, I have a few last questions for you. Yeah. And the first is if you were not doing farming, and there was something else that you could be doing aside from farming, what would it be? Oh man. I mean, other than kind of being a vagabond and just traveling around the world, I'm doing it. Like I really like changed my whole life around to do this. So I really am. So I get to combine farming and education, which are really the two things that I'm good at and love doing and like in my most kind of comfortable space. And so I, that's it. I mean, I do miss traveling and being a farmer kind of takes traveling out of your lifestyle, you know, especially a hydroponic farmer where it's not weather dependent. It's 365 days a year. 
But um, I really like, you know, did some soul searching way back before I moved to Ohio to figure out that this is what I wanted to do. So I, I actually wouldn't do anything. All right. I can deal with that answer. I can deal with that. That's yeah. a good enough BS answer, but I like it. And but it is true. You, you knew me back then. I mean, I left my job. I moved to the Midwest. Like I'm, I'm doing it. So you know, I'm giving you, I know, I know. I'm <laughs> and then when, I mean, shit, Jen, when things actually do open up and you can get on a plane, aside from all the other stuff that you're doing and you can get on a plane, where in the world, where are you going? Like the first place that popped into your brain, where are you going? Oh man. I mean, I have a list of like a million places. I think my next, I've, first of all, I want to say I've been super lucky in that I've been to many, I've been all over the world, right? I've been to almost all the places that I've wanted to go. I have not spent a significant amount of time in South America. So that's pretty high on my list as well as Southeast Asia, I have not been to. So those are the two really like kind of big places I haven't, I've done a little bit like on a cruise, you know, parts of South America, but I haven't spent a lot of time there. And I haven't done Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, like all of those places. And that's also really high in my list. I just want to get on a plane and go anywhere. Like to- I, I was going to say, I'm actually going on a plane to Ohio in a month and I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> and Ohio in March is one of the worst places in the world. I mean, it's like- No offense to our Ohio listener. I love them and they know it, so it's okay. But like, it's like 45 and rainy. I mean, which is worse than freezing and snowing. So, but just 2019, I was, I think on a plane almost every three weeks. Yeah. I really will go anywhere. Yeah, I hear you. And I am so ready for that. And then the third thing, why should somebody go onto your website right now and give you money? Oof. Uh, So we can- grow more food to give to people who need it, right? The pandemic has shown us among so many other things that the discrepancy between healthy food for the lower income people in in our town, in our city, everywhere, they're the ones who are sacrificing. And right now, 100% of our food is going to those organizations. We've donated to the Veterans Center. We donated this week to Jewish Family Services. We're working with the city on one of their senior housing facilities to get them fresh food. So the more money we bring in, like it's going directly to people who need it, right? So again, I'm not making a salary. Nobody, we don't, ha- I'm the only employee and that's it. All of our money is going back into the organization. And we, the more food we can grow, the more we can give back. And that's really what we're trying to do. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody enjoy your car drive wherever you're going, if you're traveling somewhere, which I want to do. Thank you very much, Jen, for this. Thank and you. I cannot wait to have that tower so I can eat that sorrel like all yeah. day long, all day long. So good very much, Jen. Have a good day. All right. You too. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So I have a question, Ashley, now that hopefully everybody knows never to be a founder, but my question is this. Should Steve have ever been on Beverly Hills on a 2 Like, <laughs> Like whenever we talk about like Brandon and Dylan, and I think David, but nobody else thought David, but you know, Steve never ever, ever, ever comes up, ever, ever. So what happened to, what's his name, Ian? Ian, Ian Ziering. Yeah, I, you and I have talked about this, uh, Matt, and we are both in agreement that Steve, ugh, right? Like, they really, I, I actually agree with you. I thought David was super cute. And so I, I was more of a Brandon girl or a David. Dylan was just too much of a badass for me. And he was like 20 years older than me. So it <laughs> felt a little wrong. 
but yeah, Steve, Steve, I never understood that casting. I don't know if it was like the curly blonde hair and no offense to like curly blonde haired people out there, but he didn't work for me. And I think we all know that like Steve's career after that, what he was doing the Sharknado movies. I think that's, I think that's the last we've heard of Ian. Why is it not Ian, by the way? It's Ian. I, I think it might be Ian. We don't know. Here's the thing though, actually, and I want to be really clear about this, that Everybody who's an Ian Ziering, Ian Ziering, Steve fan, please direct that hate mail directly to Ashley. Not to me. I, I'm a David fan, but Ashley wanted to just, you really just took a dump on him. Was all I, I just felt that we needed to address the Steve issue is all I was saying. Well, <laughs> all right. And, and on that fantastic Beverly Hills 90210 note, which is so not nonprofity, I am beyond excited about our next podcast. Her name is Kim Peterson. She is the vice president of change management at Aviva, which is a phenomenal organization for foster youth in Hollywood, which we'll learn more about. But people don't know what that means, especially in the nonprofit space. And I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun, that interview, because we hadn't met before, but she is a lot of fun. I mean, we talked about like going out clubbing in West Hollywood and just getting wasted once this COVID uh, nightmare is over. It was a great interview. You texted me no less than 72 times to tell me what a great interview that was. So I am for sure excited about it as well. All right. Well, thank you, Ashley, for yet again being iffy. Iffy at best. I feel like that's, <laughs> iffy that's, at a best. that's a compliment for you. That is a compliment for you, right? Well, I'm moving away from incompetence. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, no, didn't. you didn't. I'm just saying if we're like looking at I words to like start leveling me, it goes incompetence, iffy, incredible is kind of the goal oh yeah so maybe by season 17 mm. i will have gotten there we'll see i mean it's it's an incremental there's another i word an Ridiculous. incremental and process which goes back to our beginning part of our conversation about ian ian ian, ian, <laughs> ian and no more hate mail like he's great he's fantastic i do actually think he's kind of handsome and i will leave it at that so is there any anything else you want to share with our uh listeners that are hopefully left. Reading off my note card here, once again, uh, reminding everyone to please subscribe if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Jen Levy. Look forward to our next episode with Kim Peterson. You can find us at envisionnonprofit.com. Thanks for listening, everyone.